one summer's night, she fell asleep late at night with the window open and she woke up and this man was stood at the foot of her bed. The following episode contains discussion around stalking, sexual assault and violence against women. Please listen with caution. Hi there, my name is Richera and I'm a journalist. Um, I'm making a podcast about stalking and I'd love to set up a meeting to discuss working together. For legal reasons, we can't name the organisations we've been approaching in our attempts to meet a stalker. But what we can say is that many are working with some of the most high-risk, high-harm offenders. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'll be honest. I'm a bit intimidated at the thought of talking to them. Here's something that's just come in. As we heard in the last episode, there is much to be changed in how stalking cases are handled. From supporting the victim when they first report an incident, to police acting early and taking incidents seriously. But what does the law actually say about stalking? I am Grace Rose Gwynn and I'm a family barrister at Number 5 Chambers. Grace Rose Gwynn has worked on cases involving stalking in both the criminal courts and family courts. The offence of stalking is actually captured in the Protection from Harassment Act, and that was 1997. But the offence of stalking wasn't added into that act until 2012. So what it basically did was inserted into the law we already had the actual offence of stalking. So before then, it was just all about harassment And then come 2012, which was the Protection of Freedoms Act, we then had the additional offence of stalking. And, And what it basically sets out is that it's a course of conduct that has the effect and the impact of harassing, frightening and causing distress to someone. And that's basically in a nutshell, that's not me quoting from the law, but that's a layman's explanation of what that law means. And there are also a list of impacts it can have on a person's life. So for example, causing them to have to move house, causing them to have to change route, you know, details that. But it also lists an example of the acts and behaviours of a perpetrator. So what we would usually think of stalking, following a person, contacting or attempting to contact them, publishing material about them, monitoring them with the internet, following them, loitering in a place where they are likely to be and watching and spying on a person. I find it shocking 
that stalking wasn't added as a specific offence to the Protection from Harassment Act until 2012. It's such a specific crime that is so damaging to victims, and it's been happening for years. Do you know what I think it is? I think the law is always responsive and reactive rather than proactive. Mm. And so what we do as a country and as a legal system is we wait until there is behaviour that is being moaned about, complained of, and then we act to stop it. So it probably is because the behaviour, if we look back into the 20th century, was almost condoned behaviour. If you look at the victims, they're more often than not women. And if you look at the behaviour in the sort of patriarchy we had in the 20th century, it probably took a long time for the legal system to actually catch up. Harassment, I mean, if you look at bunny boilers and sort of the history of women harassing men, harassment became a law in the 90s. But then stalking, which is a predominantly female victim-based offence, didn't become until the 21st century. So that might just be my perception of the law, but it wouldn't surprise me, given the nature of how our law has evolved and has always been pro-men up until very recently. I mean, it wasn't that long ago. It was legal to rape your wife. So it's not surprising that it's taken some time to catch up. Is there a current legal definition of stalking? The official definition in the offence, so in the statute about stalking, it says uh, the purposes of stalking, it's a person's conduct which amounts to stalking if it harasses one person, if it's associated with stalking and if the course of conduct is known that it would cause harassment. And then the acts involved in the course of conduct is the ones that I listed, following, contacting, publishing, loitering. There's a variety of reasons and explanations it can fall into and it gives about seven examples in the law of what could constitute stalking. But you've also got to have the and it amounts to harassment of a person. What are the implications of that definition? Do you think that definition works as a definition for what the act of stalking is? It is not an exhaustive list. So I think in that sense it does work. Because what we're saying is if it doesn't fall within one of these seven reasons or seven examples, it doesn't mean it's not stalking. It just gives associated Mm behaviours. So I think it's important to keep the net quite wide because actually as technology advances and we have more and more platforms, stalking becomes more sophisticated. I have no doubt that with case law, so examples of cases that have had decisions where they've said, oh, this is stalking, that list will grow ever more. Because it's important to know that in England, we're not just bound by the laws that are written out. We're also bound by decisions of judges from the past. Say, let's take TikTok, for example. TikTok is a very recent development that has taken over the world and taken over the younger generation. So let's say there was a person posting TikToks about you and it was constant. It was about every detail of your life. It did reenactments of your route to work, your job, your family life. At the moment, that's not within the seven examples because it postdates the law. But that's not to say that there hasn't been a decision made by a judge to say, actually, behaving like this is stalking. So therefore, you're also bound by that decision on a case by case basis as well. Of the stalking cases that end up in court, 66% end up in a conviction. But the problem often lies in getting to that stage. 
Charge rates for stalking have fallen year on year, falling from 11 to 6% from 2020 to 2022. For context, there were 719,430 stalking and harassment offences recorded in the year ending September 2022. The conviction rate for stalking is incredibly low. I mean, we're currently in a society where less than one in 50 cases of stalking are even reported. There's a reason for that. One, I think it's really difficult for victims to come forward. I think it's hard to know they're going to face their perpetrator. It puts them already in a very vulnerable position moving forward. And also because of the nature, insofar as it will solely rely on the evidence of the victim, sometimes it's hard because there's not that independent evidence that corroborates what the account is that the victim's given. It's difficult for the police force to collect evidence for stalking cases But also, I think there's an attitude to stalking cases that that it's not taken seriously enough. Stalking offences can really change someone's life. I mean, I have clients that were stalked years ago, almost a decade ago, and they still will constantly look over their shoulders. And so there's a real problem that we don't take it seriously enough. And sadly, the number of recorded stalking offences has tripled since 2020. And the conviction rate is only going down. So it's really, really concerning. Why do you think rates of stalking have increased to that level? I think there have got to be multiple reasons for that. My gut tells me it's because of the birth of the internet exploding. I mean, now we have so many different ways to reach someone that actually the opportunity is there And the internet provides us with a level of anonymity. And for people that are that way inclined, they take complete advantage of that. It's also much more convenient now. I mean, if you take the archetypal stalker, let's say in the 80s, that the man you imagine hiding in the train station, following a woman home, wearing a trench coat and dipping in and out of bushes every time she looks over her shoulder, you now transfer that to modern day All it takes is a few clicks on your phone to be able to find out someone's workplace, someone's photos of their family. And if you use a few different mediums, Google Maps, for example, you can walk down a street on Google Maps. There's so many resources available to us that if a person wants to use those resources to do bad, then they can. And it's quite easy to do so, especially where we live in in a generation now where people are more than happy to post their entire lives on social media. So it can get really dangerous and quite dark rather quickly. What protection is offered to victims when they first report stalking? Is there any protection? So we have these stalking protection orders. Introduced in 2020, these orders or SPOs allow police to act before a conviction. I've heard of them. I know of them. Do I see them a lot? No. Do I think they were more of a handy scheme for the government to say they were doing something about stalking? Yes. And the reality is it's it's a piece of paper. So what protection does that really afford you? It's a bit like... In family court, we deal with non-molestation orders and it prevents someone from a specific behaviour. It may be attending within 100 metres of their home. It may be contacting them. But then even if they breach that, it's still then wholly dependent on the police and the courts 
to then action it and do something about it. So the piece of paper, these protection orders are only as useful as the courts and the police are going to act upon them. It's not as good as saying, well, I saw him on my drive, therefore do something about it. That's not enough. They're going to want to see CCTV, any photographic evidence. I mean, the amount of clients I advise that to say, if you see him, start recording, start filming, disclose your ring bell footage to the police because the police aren't going to act. I mean, I've had a woman who had 39 breaches, this man, 39 breaches. And I said, write a diary and schedule them all out with all attachments. She had photographs, she had exhibits, she had statements from shopkeepers to say that he'd been into that shop to find out about what time she was finishing work and still nothing was done. Yeah, it really seems like the onus is on the individual to kind of capture the event of stalking in multiple ways, which I'm sure on top of everything is really tricky and very difficult. And also, if you're looking at a stalker that has physically harmed you in the past, let's talk about intimate relationships. We have flight or fight or freeze. So a lot of people freeze when they see them and go into a complete panic. The last thing on their mind is to try and capture the evidence. They are more thinking, I need to get myself to safety. And so it's one, it's an unduly harsh onus on the victims to capture it. And also there then comes a level of disbelief because if you haven't got the evidence, the fear is no one's going to believe you when you say, well, he was stood quite brazenly on my driveway last night. When Grace describes terrifying examples like this, I can't help but try to imagine what typology of stalker they might be. Are they people who don't want to accept rejection? Or ex-partners who can't take no for an answer? The five types that I've read about are rejected, resentful, intimacy-seeking, incompetent suitor, predatory. How do those typologies fit into both the criminal court and the family court? Present in both, especially in the family court, because if you look at those five examples that you've given, they're romantic. So they will always be present in the family court. In the criminal court, it might be one or two of them. It might be three of them or or all of them. Predatory is alarming and that's definitely present in both criminal and family courts. But also rejected because that tends to be a lot more present that I have seen in the family court where you'll see that they'll be fine, there'll be no weird behaviour up until one party has chosen to end the relationship and then that pattern of behaviour starts. So I would definitely say they're, they're present in both courts, but I think the combination of all five is going to be more frequently seen in the family court, given the intimate nature of the relationship. Is there is there one type that seems to be the most common of the types that I just named? Or is it really, you know, a coalescence or kind of a mixture of all of them? From the family courts, that's easier to answer because I would say it would come from resentment usually resentment from leaving, resentment from having the children in the other person's care, resentment from having another partner. So I would say that element is always in the family court. But what I have seen in the criminal court is this intimacy-seeking and predatory behaviour, which is why it's not so much just the offence of stalking. The fear is that it's a precursor to more serious and harmful acts. And that's when the intimacy seeking and predatory, especially when we start looking at rape and sexual assault, I think it becomes a very slippery slope to that. What is the average sentence for stalking? Is there an average sentence? No, 
there's not an average sentence because it depends on, on, on loads of competing factors. So it will look at the type of the behaviour, the impact it's had. And so there's not a one case fits all. But what I can say is that the maximum sentence is six months in custody. So you're not getting longer than that for one offence of stalking in this country. It can also be dealt with by way of community service or fine. The only way that people get longer than that is when there are multiple counts of the same offence. But for one offence, one type of stalking, one person against one complainant, that's six months in custody. But from my experience, the usual way of dealing with this is community service and or a fine. It's not often it results in custody from what I've seen. As we've learned previously, stalking often makes up a pattern of domestic abuse. In fact, 50% of stalking cases involve the rejected suitor and intimacy-seeking typologies, which we've heard often involve an ex-partner. Grace says there is stalking involved in one of three cases she works on in the family court. Stalking, again, for the reasons I set out at the outset, it encompasses so many different types of behaviour that the strands of stalking in a lot of the cases I do. I mean, I had a case where I was applying for a non-molestation order on behalf of a mother and she was saying that the father was stalking her every move and she was petrified all the time. And having met her, she was an absolute shell of a person. She was so afraid of bumping into him. She had turned up in court with a fractured wrist And I asked her just out of curiosity, oh, how did you break your wrist? And she said that she saw a man that looked like the father and she jumped that much. She fell down a flight of stairs and it wasn't even him. It just, it was just a man that bore resemblance to the man. But her case, which we were successful with, and she did get a non-molestation order, her level of stalking actually resulted in behaviours such as he had a spare key to her vehicle So in the morning, when she would take her children to school, she would obviously get in the car. And as she reversed out of her drive, she'd look in the rearview mirror and out from the back seat would up pop the ex-husband. And what he had done is let himself into her car using the spare key, lay down on the floor and jumped up. Now, this is seven in the morning in the winter months where it would have been dark. And just that level of invasion is absolutely petrifying. I've had clients that sleep with their curtains open because their children co-sleep and the street light then acts as a nightlight for their children. And they've woken up in the morning or in the middle of the night and seen their ex-partner's face pressed up against the window and they've been stood on the roof outside their window watching them sleep. And then sort of the more milder ones is what happens when someone's texting you giving you live updates as to where you are. You know, you're not physically seeing them, but you know they're seeing you. But yes, stalking and strands of stalking features in significant amount of the cases I deal with. Have you seen any commonalities or trends in stalking cases that you've dealt with? Yes, it's an entitlement. It's a complete arrogance, an overwhelming sense of arrogance of the perpetrator to feel that they are entitled to know their partner's movement, 
There's also a massive amount of justification for that behavior. It starts off usually as a complete denial. And then when the evidence speaks for itself and they not bang to rights, but it's overwhelming, then they seek to justify that behavior as, well, I had safeguarding concerns. I had to stare through her bedroom window at three in the morning because I was worried that she was abusing the children. I had to follow her because she left me and I just wanted to get her back to have a family unit with the children. So it starts with denial and then arrogance and justification, I would say. In terms of how stalking started or how it escalates, is there any kind of trends with that as well with, you know, maybe signs at the beginning or I don't know, ways that the story plays out? In family cases, I can speak more freely about this because it's the same pattern time after time. It's usually there's been an element of coercive control and behaviour in the relationship. And that may not have been picked up by the victim. So it may be such as, I'm so concerned about you, text me when you get home. Now, to anyone quote unquote normal or not in an abusive relationship, that's a nice gesture. But then it's about how that escalates. Then it's, well, text me every time you leave the house. Text me when you change location. I'm only doing this because I'm worried about you. And then it's, well, do you know what? To save you the bother of having to text me, let's just put, an app on your phone that I can track it because I'm worried about you. I want to make sure you get home safe. And then it slowly, slowly creeps up. I also see a lot of love bombing where women, and it is usually women, particularly vulnerable because of their own history or needs, tend to love that kind of behavior at the start because they see it as so protective, very alpha male, and they feel safe. And so when it starts slowly descending, they don't clock it because it's a very gradual escalation by their partner. And then it can descend into full-blown stalking where it is trackers on cars, it is cameras outside bedrooms, it's motion detectors outside the front door with alerts only going to that the perpetrator's phone. It's also putting Apple tags or locations in children's rucksacks so they can cross-reference whether they are actually with the child when they say they are. It can get pretty dark really quickly. It'll be interesting to know if love bombing's a term that lots of people have come across. Relationship terms seem ubiquitous at the moment, and it feels like everyone's dropping love bombing and gaslighting and all these terms regularly. It'll be good to know if people know what it actually means. Um, <laughs> have you heard of the term like love bombing? I never heard that, quite. <laughs> like. never heard it. I guess what it is, it's like really overblown, like expressions of love and affection. It's not like actual intimacy. It's not actual love. It's just like really over the top gestures, expressions of like huge devotion that actually maybe don't tally with how that person's actually treating you. I think there's two two sides to it, really. Like there is the person that feels that love straight away and feels it like incredibly strongly and then there's the second side of it where it's like this is someone who's doing that to be manipulative and maybe to make someone feel more dependent on them um, and dependent on their romantic partnership. How do you define love bombing just so that everyone's on the same page with what that term means? 
it's so difficult because there's always a honeymoon period in any relationship. And so what I don't want to do is then anyone that's in a new relationship or is happy, now I'm trying to say, well, actually your partner's an abuser. But love bombing traditionally is when you meet someone and they are so obsessed straight away. But And I mean obsessed in the colloquial word, so into you, so caring, so protective, mm. constantly want to talk to you, constantly want to see you, want to pick you up from nights out, want to take you there, want to take you here. And so it feels like you're just living this dream. But then that is a, that is a method and a techniques that a woman, usually a woman, falls madly in love so that when the behaviour stops or changes, she's already trapped emotionally. It's so hard, isn't it? Because I feel like a lot of people will probably relate to elements of that, but then it's how do you know when it's toxic and how do you know when it's, you know, a whirlwind romance or something like that? It's so difficult. And But, but what I think we have a, a fantastic ability to do is have a gut feeling and we choose to ignore it time after time. And with the benefit of hindsight, I mean, hindsight's always twenty twenty, but nine times out of 10, I'll have a client. They'll say, do you know what? There were red flags. There were signs. I just chose to ignore it, give them the benefit of the doubt. But actually, if something feels wrong, it's because it probably is wrong. If this person is being nice and doing kind things, and that's fantastic. But if you think, well, actually, what would happen if I was to reject that offer to pick me up from a night out? Would he react negatively it's that sort of litmus test that is a good indicator as whether this is a healthy, lovely gesture or whether it's a toxic attempt to control and manipulate. I feel like people know the answer if you ask that of yourself as well. It's really clear. And in so far as stalking potentially escalating, which is why it needs to be caught early on, there was a, another case I'd worked on where a lady had co- contacted the police multiple times about a stalker. This man had been turning up outside her house, outside her workplace and outside her gym. Initially, she dismissed it by way of coincidence because she did not know this man. But then it became too common and too often. So she did report it. It wasn't taken seriously because she couldn't provide an explanation as to why someone would want to do that to her. So again, falling back on the victim. But this man would not leave her alone. He was standing in the bushes in her front garden, peering into her house. And one summer's night, she fell asleep late at night with the window open and she woke up and this man was stood at the foot of her bed. So again, when we're looking at escalation, she's a strong woman. She screamed, her neighbours were alerted and she managed to scramble and call the police. But at this point, it's already escalated now. He's inside her home. And then what had happened if he'd sexually assaulted her? She was in, not a lot. She was sleeping in summer. It, It was hot. And she was absolutely petrified. And so there's an argument to say, had the police intervened sooner and looked after this woman, that would never have happened. And also, what was that man's intention? Was he going to sexually assault her that evening? Also, what's important is that that man found out that he had mental health issues. And again, when we're looking at the, the factors that can contribute to stalking, and mental health has to be one of them in a lot of cases, it's what is going to be done to treat the underlying cause that results to these behaviours. Because it's not just a band-aid approach and just punishing them. There's actually clearly a mental health reason that is contributing. But yes, it's definitely an escalating crime. 
In your experience, particularly when it comes to domestic abuse cases or rejected stalkers, do perpetrators view what they're doing as stalking? Is it important that they even do view it as stalking? To answer your first question, no, a lot of the time they don't view it as stalking. And that's where the entitlement and the arrogance comes in. They see it as their right as the ex-partner or the father of the children to see what their ex-partner and mother of their children is doing at that time. They also try and justify it by saying, well, it was just an attempt to get the family back together. So no, I don't think the behaviour is ever accepted as stalking initially. And so, yes, it's so important for that acceptance. It is what we call disguised compliance. It means absolutely nothing if they're just following the steps and they still don't believe they should be there. It's completely tokenistic at that point. Some of the most famous recent cases of stalking have been centred around cyberstalking. And it's a rising issue in the UK. In a survey conducted by Susie Lamplew Trust in March 2023, among people aged 16 to 24, 77% of participants had experienced some sort of stalking. And 84% of this group reported that this had taken place online. Cyberstalking is being spoken about more and more. As you say, so many of us are online and we live much of our lives online. How often does this come up in the cases that you deal with? Do police or even the courts take issues of cyberstalking just as seriously as, you know, other forms of stalking? I think the honest answer is a lot of courts are a bit afraid of cyberstalking because it's still so new and they don't really want to grapple with it. However, it is important and more is being done because like I said, it's the easiest way to stalk someone these days. It's so much more convenient. And actually the impact of it can be just as devastating. If you're having constant social media posts about you, about what you're doing and where you are, then that's as good as someone texting you saying, I know you're at the gym. I know you're at this cafe, this restaurant. And so absolutely it needs to be taken seriously. Also with the level of fake accounts out there, it's very easy. What I do find though, is the police and courts are not really that interested in fake accounts unless they can prove that the alleged perpetrator was the one behind the account. So it relies on police work to cross-reference IP addresses, common emails. Because if I show a court a screenshot by user 64832, and then the, the message might be awful, but how does that help a court in associating that with the perpetrator? I can say, well, we know it's him. But I mean, I've had that not too long ago where I had to then cross-examine a perpetrator about his spelling because the words that he couldn't spell were also the words that this message sender couldn't spell. And so that was the only way I was able to pin him to this message. But I mean, it doesn't take a lot of digging by the police to establish a common IP address or phone or email, but we are heavily reliant. And again, it's then on the victim to have to prove that. So not only are they receiving a horrible message or a plethora of horrible messages from an account they don't know, which is scary anyway, then you put, oh, well, it's probably this person, which there's been a pattern or a history and then it's like, well, you can't prove it. So case shut. It's really, it's really tough. And I don't think as a country, we do enough to protect victims of stalking, especially when we look at their mental health and the grave consequences it can have. 
This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Um, have you heard of cyber stalking? So you know on the internet and the... social media? Yeah, exactly. I think everyone does it at some point, not in a bad way. Yeah. Yeah, 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 like not in a dangerous way. Exactly. In a like a normalized way. Exactly. I don't know what cyber stalking is. I'm not sure what the definition would be. I definitely am the kind of person that has like found out information about someone on the internet that they like might not know is there um, through like stuff like you know company's house or I've like looked at people's addresses on right move um, like I admit to doing that but is that cyber stalking maybe I've done it I'm, I guess there must be a line where it crosses that um, it becomes stalking but I wouldn't I wouldn't know what that line would be Do you think that we as a society even downplay stalking? You know, there's all, there's quite a few jokes, especially with, I guess, online memes and things like that of saying, oh, I was just stalking your Instagram profile. Do you think that that has an impact on very real issues of stalking? Yes, I, I do think it does. It normalises it. It makes it a joke. We're all guilty of using that phrase. It's a phrase that bounces back between friends and you don't even think about what you're saying. So yes, I do think we downplay it absolutely, especially when there are people that have fake accounts on social media for the sole purpose of watching either an ex-partner's uh, social media or, you know, people have these spoof accounts that aren't them that they use just for watching other people's social media. And that in the modern age is condoned. We find it quite funny. And I'm not trying to say that that's the same as actually stalking someone, but it does generalise and make it quite a comical parody, really. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I'd never considered how normalised it is for so many of us, you know, to have um, alt accounts and just follow up on exes or people that, you know, we don't want them to see what we're doing. And it's kind of this very normalised thing that we do. So when it comes to solutions to the situation we're in with stalking and, you know, trying to get victims the support they need, is this a police resource issue? What What is the problem? 
between those two things? I would say that's one of the factors. I think it absolutely is a police resource issue, especially when the police force are so underfunded and overwhelmed at the moment and they have to deal with with really serious crimes. Obviously, this is not a priority for them. But also, I think it's a teaching point as well. I know from the cases I've dealt with that it's taken a long time for a police officer involved in a case to actually action these allegations or these complaints. And so I think there's definitely a teaching point there to show the police the implications of stalking. And actually, it's not just a nuisance crime, which is the way it is usually perceived. It actually can have devastating consequences. So that's another one. But also when it comes to the courts, I think the courts need to be more strict on actually punishing those that have breached these orders rather than giving them a slap on the wrist. I think that more needs to be done. I think more people need to be going to custody for these kind of offences rather than just fines and community service because then it it is deemed as a slap on the wrist and it feels like they've gotten away with it, especially when the perpetrator has been sat there in court and the victim has had to stand up in front of them and relive their whole ordeal. So yeah, I think definitely uh, a resource issue, but more importantly, I would say a teaching issue for the police and then a harsher and less lenient approach by the courts. A source from West Midlands Police told us that Organisations that work with reform stalkers feel that exposing them to high-profile interviews risks having a negative impact on their behaviour. I wonder, is there actually a way to meet a reform stalker ethically? How we respond to stalking can be a massive deterrent and help victims see justice. But surely this is just one half of the story. How about we look at the source of the problem? From an incompetent suitor to an intimacy seeker, who are the people that stalk? How do they begin their journey of obsession? And can they actually be stopped? Thanks for listening to Anatomy of a Stalker. If you have been affected by any of the issues in this episode, resources are available on the advice and support page at crimeandinvestigation.co.uk forward slash advice. Next time. Which is really a delusion of love. So that person feels that they are absolutely destined to be with that object and they will continue targeting that person until that is realised. Is there actually a way to rehabilitate stalkers? Anatomy of a Stalker is a crime and investigation original podcast from Q Podcasts. It's hosted by me, Rachira Sharma, produced by Kim Montgomery and Graham Woodcock, with music and sound design by Tom Hughes and Graham Woodcock. Niall Kalini-Taylor is our executive producer, and the commissioning editors for Crime and Investigation are Sam Pearson and Diana Carter.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.